Ahoy Mets fans, welcome to episode 196 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I am Brian Salvatore, and I apologize for sounding that I have a cold, because I do, but that's alright. Sorry about the unexpected week off last week, things got a little bit crazy, but we're back this week with a very, very big episode. We have lots coming up, we're going to talk about Jay Bruce, we're going to talk about Alejandro de Aza, but first, Chris McShane and I talk about the Mets trades that they recently made, as well as Jacob deGrom, and uh, we pose a question that we don't think there's a real answer to. So, take it away, Brian and Chris. Tonight I am talking with Chris McShane about the last week in the Mets world, which was highlighted by a pair of trades that Sandy Alderson and company made just before the trading deadline on Monday, August 1st. In the more major trade, the Mets got right fielder, left-handed hitting Cincinnati Red, Jay Bruce, in exchange for middle infielder, Dilson Herrera, and minor league arm, um, I'm blanking on his name. Max Wotel. Max Wotel, thank you. Sure. Uh, and on the other side of the uh, coin, we reacquired Jonathan Neese from the Pirates in exchange for Antonio Bastardo. So, um, Chris, I know there were other trades out there that perhaps were more exciting, but how do you feel about what the Mets brought in and what the Mets sent away in sort of broad terms? We'll get into specifics in a few minutes. Yeah, overall... I I like what they did on the day, but I don't love it. Um, you know, what they brought in should help the team this year, more so Bruce than Nice. Um, but even Nice might have some value. And, you know, it's an awkward fit and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the one thing is that I was particularly bummed that Dilson Herrera uh, – went away so i'm happy that the mets have bruce i i don't think Dilson herrera is going to be a move that you look back in five or ten years and say like oh my god that was one of the worst trades of all time but i was kind of looking forward to what he was going to do so uh for 2016 i'm happy with what they did and then for the next several years uh, maybe a little less yeah um there have been rumblings over the last few months that the Mets had really lost some of the, their uh, enthusiasm for Herrera as a player. And if it wasn't for knowing that going into the trade, it would have seemed like an insane trade. Like uh, My dad is a, a baseball fan, but you know does not follow the team nearly as closely as folks like you and I do. And so he called me and was like, what the hell is going on? They let Murphy walk in part because they thought that Herrera was the second baseman of the future, and now they're giving him up for a corner outfielder when they already have too many corner outfielders? I don't understand this. And uh, I understand his reaction, and I'd be lying if I said that that wasn't somewhat similar to my reaction, but like I said, you know, we have been hearing these reports that the team has soured on him a bit, although uh, has have there been... Has there been much indication as to why the team has soured on him? Or just sort of his less than uh, stellar AAA performance? Yeah, I, I don't know anything more specific than that. You know, and it, he was really hot to start the year in terms of hitting in AAA. And then obviously he's cooled off when you look at the overall line. It's, you know, it's decent. And you try not to read too much into stats at any level, whether it's Las Vegas or 
anywhere else um, because there's just a little more to it than that, especially on the minor league side of things. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think it was probably that. And I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it just goes back to the second stint that he got when he came up to the big leagues again last year and he just didn't really tear the cover off the ball. He held his own, which I think at his age was a pretty decent thing to do. Uh, and you know, young players can take some time to develop no matter what position they play. You know, we hear it, I think primarily about catchers, but you know, look at Byron Buxton, not that Dilson Herrera was ever on that level of, you know, prospect type. Right. But you know, a guy who was consensus number one prospect in baseball, who's come up to the big leagues a couple of times and just hasn't clicked. Uh, you know, Mike Trout, another one who, again, we're not talking about the same tier. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the first time he comes up, uh, 100-something, 150-ish played appearances, not good. Um, so to me... I would hope that it, if, you know, to the extent that they soured on him was since then, that it wasn't just that. Because at his age, I think he did a respectable job. And, you know, obviously he didn't perform so well that he took over. You know, I mean, there was a, a chance there when Murphy got hurt early last year. If Herrera came up and went on a tear, he might have been the second baseman. Yeah, absolutely. Like that was not a far fetched thing in it was either April or May. Uh yeah. The first time he came up, so not only that, but people had essentially penciled him in to be the twenty sixteen starting second baseman. Until they traded for Walker, I think just about everybody expected him to take over the position full time this year. So it's not like the Mets soured on him over the course of a couple of years. You know, six months ago he was essentially I mean not six months, eight months ago he was pretty much the uh the consensus pick to start the season as their second baseman right and now clearly alderson feels you know very comfortable with gavin Cicchini to the extent or to the you know he's he's out there uh he brought him up when he spoke to the press he brought him up again in the booth when, yesterday right so yeah. it was you know and he, he mentioned Jose Reyes as well and the fact that they control him for next year. All I keep having flashbacks to is that season that Reyes played second while um, Kazmatsui <laughs> played short. Yeah, it's not not great memories. No, no. But, you know, it, it's... I get it, you know, and I, I have not seen Las Vegas play. So, mm -hmm. you know, I can't really say anything too strongly in terms of Chikini versus Herrera, but clearly they were comfortable enough with Chikini that they were willing to part with Herrera. Um, Do you think that there's a snowball's chance in hell that they re-sign Neil Walker? So that's been one of the interesting things, right? People have pointed out that when he's been asked about second base next year because of the trade, he hasn't come out and said Neil Walker. Um, I wouldn't rule it out entirely. You know, at this point, I would I would welcome it. Uh, you know, not just because Walker has bounced back, but because, you know, I didn't assume he was done uh, when he struggled. Right. So, I would be on board, and I think as long as he hits, I mean, right now he's been on a little bit of a hot streak. His overall numbers are right back up around the career norms. 
as long as he stays around that level, and especially if he exceeds it a little bit, uh, I, I think he still ends up with a qualifying offer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then if he accepts, okay. Chikini and Reyes can, you know, figure out their roles on the infield dependent upon what happens with everybody else. Um, and and you go from there. And that would be fine. You know, it, it's <laughs> the one thing about the trade. I must have said it at least half a dozen times on this podcast and written it and said it in conversations with friends and family and everything that, you know, the whole transition Murphy leaves, you trade Walker or you trade for Walker and you give up John Neese, who I was very expendable. And then you sort of go through the same thing again and hand it over to Dilson Herrera. It seemed like a very nice relay team at second base. Yeah. That's broken now. Yes. Yes, it is. So, you know, now, I'm, the free agent market this winter for second baseman is Neil Walker. Yep. That's it. There's not another player on there that you could really consider saying, oh, that guy could start for a contending team. I've seen some rumblings about the idea that if Chikini or Reyes started the season at second and Rosario gets hot. You can move the dribble. Yeah, you move Cabrera to second, yeah, and you bring up Rosario, which isn't the worst thing I've ever heard. Um, but that's assuming a bunch of things, right? Well, I think Rosario's year this year has sort of changed the entire uh, the whole middle infield situation and perception of the farm system, right? I mean, it's not that he wasn't ranked; he, you know, he was a recognized guy, but. That the fact that he's had the breakout, I think, helps you maybe dream on that scenario a little bit. Yeah. You yeah. know, rather than another year where you go, oh, the talent is there and all this, and he's, you know, he's done all right, he's done all right, where he's just come out and been everything that everybody said he could be. Um, yeah, it, it's not impossible to think a year from today that he could be playing shortstop for the Mets. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, we'll talk about this in just a second, but the Mets currently have a glut of left-handed corner outfielders, and I have a feeling that there's a situation where the Mets, this time next year, have a glut of uh, second, short, and third baseman with no one really fitting anywhere. You know, because you're going to have right back, hopefully play yep. you know uh, not really the ideal third baseman anymore you're gonna have reyes filling in at spots in the infield second base might be his best bet right now but who really knows you're gonna have chikini a converted shortstop you're gonna have uh wilmer flores another man with that position as rubel cabrera who probably should be playing second base you know it's just it's, it's gonna be kind of a mess in the infield next season yeah, I mean, they're going to be sort of in a spot that we haven't seen in a long time. Uh, they should have position players who they can trade. That's true. And, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that Dom Smith is on the way in 2017 by any means. But, you know, if the resolution to the corner outfielder glut is to teach one of them, probably Michael Conforto, how to play for his base mm-hmm. over the offseason season you know, or whatever it is, Lucas Duda is still going to be around. 
you know, you, you've seen maybe a couple of mentions on Twitter, depending on who you follow, of potentially non-tendering him, which is ridiculous. That is the most insane thing I've heard today. And Donald yeah. Trump spoke a lot today. Yes. So that's that's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the, the guy hit 64 home runs in two, two seasons and a month. I can just hear Steve Shriver's brain melting when people yes. say that. Yeah, so it's... They're not going to non-tender him. That would be no. absurd. But they could, you know, say they teach Conforto first base, they tender Duda, they go into the winter. Whatever else happens, happens. But you have two left-hand hitting first basemen, you know. I know everybody's fallen in love, in love with James Loney, but if he's not around anymore, so be it. But even if it is Duda and Conforto or Duda and, you know, say Bruce says, hey, I'm going to learn first base, uh, you know, just hypothetically. If you're in a spot where you have, all right, well, we have these two guys, you know, they might be able to trade Duda. They might be able to trade any one of the middle infielders that we just talked about either before or during the season. You know, that's sort of new territory. Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, first base is, is going to be really interesting to look at. I actually think that the Mets are a fascinating team in the offseason, whether they make the playoffs or not. There, there, there are so many decisions to be made regardless of what happens at the end of the season. Yeah, it's... and I am certainly very, very, very far from giving up on 2016. Mm -hmm. Still in it for for this, but since we're coming off the trade deadline, the, you know, sort of the spirit of roster manipulation is, uh, you know, it, it lends itself to an off-season kind of discussion. But the, I think the really comforting thing is that the 2017 Mets should contend yeah, that's you know that was one of the thoughts I had last night. We were supposed to full disclosure. We were supposed to record this last night, and we were both so <laughs> beaten down by the Mets' loss to the Yankees that we decided to put it off a day. But I was thinking about it, you know, and there really aren't that many assets that the Mets are losing this winter that I, I'm going to be brokenhearted about. I mean, I'm going to miss Bartolo if they don't bring Bartolo back, right? Um. You know, I would like Jerry Blevins maybe to come back again if he if he keeps pitching about what he's at the level he's pitching right now. You know, but but lefty you know, loogies are kind of a fungible asset, so that's not the end of the world. Neil Walker, I'd like to come back, but the team doesn't fall apart if Walker isn't there. And Cespedes, you know, might opt out, but that's a whole other conversation. But I, right. I, I but I feel like no matter what. The Mets core is pretty strong for the next year. For next year, I I really do think that if they miss the playoffs this year, next year is the all-in year for them. Yeah, just yeah, it's, just, it's, just based on a couple factors, you know, it seems like that's the move they're going to make. Yeah, I think so, and it's, I think that's probably the closest they're going to come to having the mix of players they've acquired from outside the organization with the pitchers who have been in it and the position players who have been in it, whether they were already major leaguers like David Wright or, you know, guys like Rosario who might be knocking on the door. Um, you know, that, 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 that's comforting to me. Yeah. You know, and if it's a wild card berth this year and that one 50, 50 game, that is going to be the most stressful single game of baseball. Any of us have ever watched. Oh shit, man. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you know, it, it, we're still early enough that I'm not ruling out anything, including no. the division. But it's uh, what scares me the most about that one game playoff is if it's against the Marlins, and it's you know Jose Fernandez pitching, and it's Giancarlo Stanton coming up four times in that game. Yeah, that's absolutely terrifying to me. Um, but yeah, it's still too early to be talking about that for a number of reasons. Uh, we've somehow been speaking for like 15 minutes about the trades and haven't really talked about Jay Bruce yet. Right. So we should, we should probably get to him. Uh, Jay Bruce is a left-handed hitting right fielder. He currently leads the major, leads the National League rather, in RBIs, a stat that I don't care about, but I know many people do. Um, he's, he has a reputation for being a subpar right fielder at this point in his career. He is not a uh, a guy who's going to bat more than 270, 275 for your most likely. He's a good hitter. He's hit, I believe, 25 or 26 home runs already this season. And, you know, he's going to provide a little bit of pop for the Mets. The concern here is that the Mets have basically zero center fielders on the active roster right now. The best bet for the Mets going forward is that Juan Lagares is thumb injury truly is only a six-week recovery, which puts him back towards the end of September. If there was going to be a playoff series, you would want Ligaris at least as a defensive option late in games. Right. Uh, so right now, in a perfect world, you'd have, I guess, Cespedes playing center, but he's asked not to, and he's nursing a leg injury. So that leaves your your best pure center fielder on the roster to be Alejandro Deaza, who started tonight in center field, but is not really a center fielder and is by far the poorest offensive option of your in-house options. So you're probably looking for the next five games in the American League. You're probably looking at a Conforto, Granderson, Bruce, left to right uh, outfield configuration with Cespedes DHing and Deaza as your late inning defensive replacement. None of that should make you feel very good if you're somebody who values defense in the outfield. But offensively, Bruce certainly provides a nice boost and an upgrade to what the Mets had going into uh, yesterday's game. So let's talk about Bruce for a second. What What is your realistic expecta- expectation of Bruce for this season? So I'll buy in uh, that he's basically hitting the way that he always had. Uh-huh. You know, from 2010 through 2013, this is about the level he hit at. You know, the home runs were there. The on-base percentage wasn't great, but, you know, it was all right. Um, league average-ish. It was a little bit higher earlier in his career, and it's come down a bit uh, as he's sort of lowered his walk rate. Um, but he's not striking out as much as he used to. You know, there's sort of there's some trade-offs there and everything, right? Uh, the concern about his hitting is that he was bad for two years in a row. You know, if it was like you're looking at that, whether it's baseball reference or fan graphs or wherever you prefer to get your stats, you know, you're looking at that year by year and you go like, oh, early in his career, he was all right. And then he broke out and he was really good, really good, really good. And then like, oh, he was bad. And then he was bad again. If it was just one line, 
you'd go like, oh, that was like the outlier. You know, that was just a weird year, whatever. That was the aberration that everybody has at some point in their career. Right. I mean, that's how we would have felt about Luke Roy, right? If right. the Nets had acquired him, it was four four really good years to great years. One year last year that was, you know, uncharacteristic in its uh, lack of performance. And then he's right back to where he always was. So I guess, you know, if you're going to be a little concerned about Bruce, that to me would be why. It's just that that, you know, it was a pretty significant amount of time that he struggled as a hitter. Uh, but now everything looks pretty normal. You'd like to see him walk a little bit more. But, you know, it's not like he's got like a crazy BABIP. You know, it's 275 coming into tonight's game, um, which is both normal within the context of baseball in general and for him. So, you know, it's not like he's doing anything that goes, uh, oh, wow, he's not capable of that. Um, so, yeah, I think he, he – I expect that level of offense from him. Uh, and I felt a little bit better after talking to our uh, our friend over at Red Reporter – Yes, you know. which folks will be hearing sometime after this interview on the podcast, or yes. after this conversation on the podcast. So, yes, so a little bit, a little bit later. But after having that conversation about Bruce, and I won't get too into it, but I felt a little bit better about his defense coming out of that. Yeah, I, I'm not concerned that he's going to be a subpar corner outfielder defensively. I think corner outfield defense is what it is for the most part. I'm just, I'm a little bit more concerned with the lack of a center fielder on the roster right now, especially because Cespedes seems to not want to place the center field right now. Yeah. I mean, let's hope the, I mean, the, and you mentioned it too, the thing that Terry Collins is hoping for, and I think we all are, is that this trip through the American League ballparks where Cespedes can DH the whole time, it's not that long, but it is a little span of time. If he comes out of that and the quad feels really good, and, and, you know, he's back to feeling like he can play at 100% or 90 or, you know, 95, somewhere in that range. Uh, and then that leads to him being okay with returning to center field. You know, I almost wonder if there's some apprehension there to return to center because that's where he got hurt. Yeah. yeah. But obviously, obviously he's not 100% healthy right now. So, you know that not in the immediate term but you know say he goes through the next five games he hits runs the bases everything looks fine you know we heard after the game tonight he he busted it down the line for an infield single yeah he seemed fine and he looked great and then he said afterwards he was a little sore and it's it basically sounds like when he opens it up you know he feels it a bit in the quad so let's say he goes through those dh games comes out of it you know, feeling pretty good and all that. I would understand if he was apprehensive about returning to the position where the he, you know it was that awkward. It was the bounce off the wall, and he, you know, he he ran to it and then had to stop and turn and try to reach for the ball as it bounced back over his head. So I I would get that, but man, if he can, you know, even if it's not in the month of August, but say that national series starts. Uh, at the beginning of September mm-hmm. and say he's by that time, you know, okay, Terry, I'll, I'll play center field. I feel good. Let's take it from there. That would really be ideal. Cause if you could have, you know, whichever two of the other three starting caliber corner outfielders, 
with him in the middle, then I, I'd feel more comfortable. Absolutely. I mean, the, the lack of a center fielder right now, to me, is sort of like, well, Ligaris is on the DL. Nobody's going to play stellar defense there anyway, so screw it. Let's go for offense. <laughs> I don't disagree with that. <laughs> I, I, I just wish I don't know if it's going to work. Yeah. I, just, I, I think they're just like, well, we don't have defense there anyway, so let's just put three hitters out there and see what Fuck happens. Fuck it, let's go for it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, that that's okay. I I still think that, you know, this is one of the the points that I mentioned my dad before. My dad always always uh picks on me because he says that, you know, I I've been a team I've been a, a fan of a team that hasn't won in a long time for so long that I've put player development above everything else. Because I was basically saying to him the other day that the main reason I don't like the Bruce trade is because it means Conforto is going to get considerably less playing time. Right. And I think developing Conforto is just about the most important thing, except for winning games, the Mets can do this year. And, you know, tonight we saw Conforto get two... Opposite field doubles. Looks like he's starting to maybe come out of his funk a little bit. And luckily, they have a couple of games in the American League, so you're going to see him play a little bit more. But a week from now, it wouldn't be the craziest thing in the world for them to send Conforto down to give him some regular bats because I don't know how often he's going to be playing. And uh, to me, that's doing a disservice to your best young offensive player on the team. The guy you really need to, to figure out what you have there. Because if you have the Michael Conforto of last September and this April, that's a player you build around. If you have a Conforto of May and June of this year, that's a that's a role player who you maybe maybe you don't mind then having a logjam in the outfield because Conforto is not going to be the centerpiece of your outfield that you are starting to hope he'd maybe become. Um, so that's my biggest problem with the trade in a nutshell is just, I feel like it, it's limiting what they can do with Conforto and I don't want, this is an extreme example. I, I realize I don't want Conforto to Justin Turner us mm. where the, the team never really gives him the time to develop. And then he goes someplace else and becomes a fantastic hitter. It's a very different situation. I, I recognize, but right. Yeah, no, no, no. But the overall, you know, the overall uh, sentiment, I think, is warranted. Um, do you have a preference for sort of the regular playing time going forward? Hmm. I mean, this is a, it's a nice problem to have, right? Aside well, <laughs> from the center field issue. If they were all a little bit better, it would be a nice problem to have. <clears throat> yeah, it's uh I mean, I guess in my ideal outfield, right? Cespedes is quad is uh, cured. He's ready to play center field, right? I'm probably going Granderson and left, Cespedes in center, Bruce in right, and then Conforto gives the day off. You know, yeah, maybe Conforto starts three or four games a week, giving each of them a day off uh, from time to time. You know, obviously, if Cespedes gets a day off, it would be. With uh, with a right-handed pitcher, right, and not that he struggles against them, but to maximize the other three. Yeah, I agree with all that. So yeah, I mean that that would be the ideal. So in the realistic world, where Cespedes is 
probably limited to left field for the foreseeable future and maybe the rest of the season. I guess it's Cespedes and left. Granderson, the Granderson-Conforto alternating starts in center and Bruce in right. Um, yeah, I mean, it. like I said, it's a good problem to have in that regard. I, I'm, uh, I'm not as down on Granderson as everybody else. I was happy that Jay Bruce brought up, you know, when he was asked about runners in scoring position and what he was doing and what the Mets had been doing. Uh, and, he, you know, he brought up selection bias <laughs> in, in his response in his press conference, which made me happy, um, you know, just to hear a player say that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but also because that sort of split can be so wildly different, you know, like relief pitchers are notoriously variable from year to year. But so is runners in scoring position performance. You know, Bruce, like Granderson was great last year and Bruce was terrible last year in that regard. And then, you know, this year Bruce is hitting like 360 or something ridiculous and Granderson's hitting like 120 or whatever it is. You know, it's it's like it's just not predictive of what's going to happen in the future. Not only that, but. You know, it's not. There, there was sort of an, an internal discussion on the Amazing Avenue Slack yesterday about sort of um, like h- how much you know the the age old is clutch a thing conversation framed slightly differently. But what what the point that kept jumping out to me as I'm reading all these different comments is just you know is there something to the idea that the Mets have it in their head? that they're having a hard time with runners in scoring position. Sure, that's a possibility. It's a possibility that they're getting in their heads about it. I think there's just as much of a possibility that they don't even think about it the way that we think about it. Because it's just, to them, hitting is hitting, and if you're hitting, you know, history shows, if you're hitting the ball well, you're going to hit well with runners in scoring position. It's not, there isn't this magic skill that only appears when a runner gets on second base. It, It doesn't happen. Right. Um, so I think that while it is a it is a concern, if the team just starts hitting better, this will all go away. Yeah, and I think that's sort of the one of the more fascinating things about baseball is the individual versus team component of of playing it. You know, like that. Think about anybody else's role in a, in an organization, whatever it is. You know, you might be so focused on your department or your role and not that you don't have any clue what's going on in the rest of it, but you know, you're like each player is his own entity and each hitter is. So, you know, I know it comes up in questions and all that kind of stuff. I know like they've all heard of it uh, at the very least that, you know, they know the team's general struggles in those positions, but at the end of the day, how much does that, player any given player think about that and how much does he think about himself you know if if he's the player who has like the worst numbers you know we'll use granderson as the example Mm -hmm. maybe that's on his mind a little bit more but say the other guy you know the average guy on the mets is he really worried that like well all my teammates aren't doing that (laughs) right so i have to think more about that you know it's like not that there isn't that connection there but it's just it's 
the nature of the game is a bunch of individual matchups. So, you know, how much does team performance affect one hitter? I, you know, I, I, I don't know, but I imagine they're all kind of in their own world, especially when they're at the plate. Yeah, I would say almost certainly when they're at the plate because there's so many, there's so many variables just with your own at bat that you can't be thinking about everybody else's at bats while you're up there. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. What I found particularly funny about the conversation around Bruce and his, um, and his successful runners in scoring position is, like, two of the sort of, uh, two of the 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 cornerstones of, of a good sabermetric baseball fan is not believing in lineup construction that much. Right. Saying that it's not that important, and also saying that uh, RBIs are not that important. And yet, I saw a lot of people using a lot of sabermetrically inclined people saying that one of the reasons that Bruce was going to that Bruce was going to be a bust was because, oh, but he had Joey Votto hitting in front of him. Of course, you're going to have a lot of RBIs, and you're going to have a lot of, uh, and and the lineup the lineup just was built to help have Bruce succeed. It was interesting how people just dropped their bias when it fit their other bias. Yeah, I found that a lot yesterday. Um, look. Am I happy that there's an option for Bruce next year? I guess. I think that he becomes now a protection against Cespedes not resigning or opting out rather. Um, but I don't. I don't know if 2017 Jay Bruce excites me more than potentially 2017 Michael Conforto excites me. Um, you, know, you you mentioned before the Mets are going to have position players to deal, but I don't know necessarily if Bruce or Granderson are necessarily going to be big trade chips for them this offseason. Do you think that there is value out there? I mean, there, there's there's somebody who will take those players, don't get me wrong. But do, do, do you see, if, if Cespedes opts out, I guess, or I guess either way, with or without Cespedes, do you see both Bruce and Granderson being a part of the team next year? If Cespedes stays, and I wouldn't 100% rule that out. I know some people already have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if Cespedes stays, whether that involves extending his contract, opting out and coming back on a new contract, whatever. Um, no. I mean, like at that point, I think you just have to pick who you want to keep and move on. Um, and, you know, I like I like both of them. But it wouldn't be inconceivable to go into that situation and, and trade them both and keep Conforto and, you know, roll with that outfield. You also still have Brandon Nimmo, who, as we record, isn't on the roster. That is true. Uh, and he was nearly traded in the Jay Bruce deal, but wasn't. So, you know, there's there's no shortage of that kind of outfielder and you know there's no guarantee that you can go get a center fielder who can start for you for any of those guys but and hopefully Lagaris would be con- at least considered for that role yeah I mean it's so it's kind of a like if the offense is fine throughout the rest of the lineup you can live with Lagaris as the center fielder who you know maybe there's a breakout that comes some point down the road, but you you can't really depend on that. You know the the 
excellent defender who's not really great with the bat. I think you're selling his bat a little short. Well, it's uh, it's just the numbers against righties. Like, if he was a little bit better with the splits, I'd be more confident just because, you know, right-handed pitchers are so much more common. But Right. No, I understand that. And also, you know, we uh, this year we haven't seen him play with any real regularity. So right. when, when he's looked good in small samples, it's easy to get excited over that. When he's looked bad in small samples, it's easy to uh, dis- to dismiss him. So, right. And to, in fairness to him, you know, he's been trying to play through this thumb ligament thing, uh, and I would imagine. No, I'm not. I know that affects your hitting more than your fielding by a lot. <laughs> yeah. Especially in his glove hand, you know. So that that's. Uh, it, I don't think that should just be written off uh, in terms of his struggles as a hitter, but, but yeah, it's, it's a spot where even if you don't get the greatest return, I don't think any one of those guys would be untradeable at the very least to get a couple of decent prospects back and not have to worry about like paying part of the salary kind of thing. Uh, that, that, that sounds pretty reasonable to me. Yeah, um, and I mean, we don't know what the budget is from year to year. We're sort of in this nice state of the Mets actually spent money, and right. we haven't returned to them not doing it again. But you That know, could very well happen. You're right. Granderson, I think I want to have this accurate, but I'm pretty sure the last year of Granderson's deal is a little bit less than the this one and the previous one. Well, it was a four-year, $60 million contract. Right, and I feel like it went like – Slightly lower and higher in years one and four, and peaked in the middle. That sounds about right. That's also that's how the right contract was. Uh... Right, he gets much less expensive as the the last couple of years wind down. Yeah, um, um yeah. All right, so it's slight. So it was he's making sixteen. Granderson, this is sixteen this year, fifteen next year. Mm-hmm. So you know, Bruce, the option is thirteen. Granderson at fifteen. Even given their respective ages and performances and all that, I, I don't think either one of those is anywhere near Albatross level. No, certainly not. Yeah. Um, all right, well, let's briefly touch on Jonathan Nice returning and Antonio Bastardo going away. Um, Bastardo, I think, was a disappointment <laughs> for just about everybody uh, yeah. this year, you know. He was good for like two months, and then he was terrible. Yeah, he 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 had a wild fluctuation fluctuation in quality this season. Um, you know, that was a two year deal, right? He had two years, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, which you know, for a reliever, is always a bit of a gamble. But Bastardo had been pretty reliable as a relief pitcher the last few years. You know, he lets up a lot of base runners, but he didn't let them score until June. And then he started letting a lot of a lot more of them score. Yeah. Um, you know, Nice is an imperfect player to get back for a number of reasons. He's a very frustrating player to watch pitch every fifth day, as Mets fans can attest to. He also um, didn't exit the team in the most graceful way. No, <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's let's put it that way. It's a nice way of putting it. And he, uh, you know, he has limited value to them. You know, Alderson mentioned on the broadcast yesterday that his he's going to start out of the bullpen. He's going to begin out of the bullpen, and if they need a spot starter here or there, they'd be okay using him. 
if that's the extent of Nice's playing time, I'm more or less okay with that. He came in tonight to pitch the last two innings of a blowout, gave up a home run, gave up some general hard contact, and you know looked as miserable as ever on the mound. Uh, I, I'm okay with that being his role. What I fear is that we're going to be seeing him swap rotation spots with Verrett soon. And uh, while there's probably not a huge gap in quality between the two of them, I would much rather watch Verrett pitch every fifth day than Nice. And maybe that's just me being a tired old Mets fan who put up with a lot of subpar John Nice starts over the last few years. But um, yeah, well, it's, I, no, I'm I'm totally on board. Uh, to me, the most disappointing thing, and I guess I was just sort of I wasn't let down because it never sounded like it was going to happen. But was it was not getting somebody to bump Verrett from the rotation, and it you know, I know this is a little easier said than done. Didn't have to be somebody amazing, but you know, just somebody from around the league who was a capable fourth or fifth starter. Um, and Nice doesn't exactly inspire that, you know. I mean, he could he could totally fill in. You know, he's established that he is a major league pitcher. I think one thing with Nice and Bestardo is that they're both probably a lot better than their 2016 numbers to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you never know when a guy's going to like fall off a cliff and be done. But I suspect neither one of them is quite at that point in their career yet. Uh, and I think they both probably would have gotten better regardless of whether or not they got traded for each other. <laughs> That's fair. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is nice that Nice has that ability and, and track record. You know, he said when he spoke to everybody before the game today that I think he said his heart was still with or something along those lines uh, starting. His arm hasn't been with it for a while, though. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 I'll lose early in the season pictures of John Neese pouting in a Pirates uniform. We're like, yes! Yeah, exactly. We don't have that anymore. You know, like, part of the genius of trading him for Walker was not having Neese anymore. And, and, well, now he's back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they didn't give up much to get him. They no. They shed some salary for next year in, uh, in Bestardo. I yeah. doubt they pick up the team option on him on Nice for next year. I don't even want to imagine the number of things that would have to happen for them to pick that up. <laughs> yeah, there would have to be some uh, some catastrophes for that to happen. Right. So you know they they they, lo- they save a little bit of money by this deal. I think that more or less you're getting the same caliber of pitcher back in the deal, so it's not it's not a huge deal to me it's just i thought we were done with this right well the nice thing is that there's only the month of august where he'll occupy a spot that might prevent another reliever from coming up that's true and then you get into september with expanded rosters and with a team that should still be contending um you know please use let, more let the minor league roster this year right yeah let the minor league affiliates rot who cares you know, anybody who might be able to help call him up and get him in, you know, yeah, especially the bullpen. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the, the September schedule is generally very, very weak in terms of opposition. You know, maybe that's not the best for evaluating guys, but you can certainly give guys chances in major league games. Uh, I'm, you know, this is all my Josh Smoker 
<laughs> Understood. I, I, think our, I think our listeners by now knew what was happening here. So Yes. But, um, uh, but yeah. The one thing I will say for Nice as a positive, although this could have been true for Bastardo too, it just worked out timing-wise. Yesterday's game really could have used a reliever that could have gone two or three innings. And Nice can do that, in yeah. theory. Right. Uh, you know, yesterday's game was one of the many times I have been shouting at Terry Collins from my couch for his bullpen management. <laughs> uh, and, you know, having somebody like Nice who could have come in in the ninth inning that's not named Seth Lugo and could have conceivably gone another inning or two after that if need be. I mean, you gotta realize at the bottom of the tenth inning last night, folks, the Mets had no one left on their bench except for Cespedes, who was questionable at best to pinch hit, and they had no one left in their bullpen. They had, they had a couple of starting pitchers that maybe could have thrown an inning or two, but that that's it. And if you're doing that, then you're throwing off the rotation for later in the week. It, it was a very very poorly managed game, compiled by the fact that the Mets insist on playing shorthanded all the time. Which is my big gripe. With I feel like that's every year there is something that gets under my skin, and right. this year it's they're playing shorthanded every, seemingly every single game. Drive me nuts. Yeah, forty man roster should alleviate that, right? It and should. Jerry? It should. Yes. So <laughs> uh, we'll see. But uh, anything else on the trades from yesterday? You want to say? No, I mean that was pretty much it. I was, you know. Nice doesn't excite me. Bruce makes me happy in the sense of too many outfielders is better than not enough. Uh, I'll miss Dilson Herrera, and I'm you know less disappointed, but than than the starting situation, but still a little disappointed that they didn't find a reliever. Um, you know, Familia, Reed, Robles, Blevins have been you know really really good, and it's not that Goodell and Lugo. And Lugo was optioned, obviously, since since then. Um, you know, it's not that they've been terrible, but I'd just rather have, you know, those guys be the depth and have one more reliever on that level of those, you know, good ones who are already on the team. Yeah. Um, I, I realized I, well, when I, 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 know that, when I, I know was that wishing for this yesterday, I realized that Henry Mejia could have been that guy. Oh, yes. And it made me sad. Good point. Yeah, yeah, you could. I miss him. Yeah, I miss his hair. Yes. I miss his performance, <laughs> however altered it may have been. That is true. Um, any thoughts on uh, Max Wattel? Uh, we got into it a little bit, a little later in the episode, uh, in terms of Wotel stuff. Uh mm-hmm. I never really, I, I never saw him pitch in a competitive situation. So I saw him, you know, throw bullpens, that kind of stuff. The delivery is just as strange in person as it looks like <laughs> it is on, you know, on YouTube. Uh, you know, and it's it's one of those, like it's fine. You know, he he might be something, but he's so far away, and yeah, I'm I'm fine with it. You know, it, it that's one of those. They have to trade somebody. Yeah. And, like, I get that there's some appeal to it and all that, but it probably helps from the Mets' perspective that Zapucky has 
completely, you know, broken out and been that maybe like that the new top pitching prospect in the organization, right? Where you don't have to hold on and, and say, all right, let's hope one of these, you know, ten or twenty guys or whatever has that breakout. Um, so yeah, I, I'm fine with it. And as someone who appreciates strange mechanics and you know all that sort of thing, it would have been fun to watch that develop over the years. But uh, it's okay. Are you familiar with the uh, the Twitter trend of when you're when you're dissing somebody, switching the first and last the first letters of their first and last names? Uh, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, so like you know, if if I was trying to like you know throw shade at you, I'd call you like you know uh, Miss Christian or something like that, right? Right, right, right. Because of that, I keep wanting to call him Wax Motel <laughs> because it just it works as a thing. Yeah, it really and so does. I, I, I've I, that's my biggest bummer of all of this isn't not being able to send out you know way to go wax motel tweets in three years when he's maybe a major leaguer but yeah, yeah no, okay. it, i mean it's a great name it is a good name it's an underrated good name yeah you know it's it's no um uh was it wonderful terrific mons is that the name hmm. what was his first name it's not wonderful was it you know who i'm talking about uh, the best name in all of baseball. Wonderful, terrific Mons. Yeah, Wander Mons. Yeah, no, no. I think <laughs> it, it is wonderful, terrific Mons. Yeah, yeah. The third. Yep, the third. There we go. Yes, it, 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 it's no WT Mons the third, but it's still a very good name. <laughs> but they do have Zapucky, not only for <laughs> his performance, but for a name that people can't spell or pronounce or any of that. Yeah. I, I will always, as someone who watched Doug Mankiewicz as a minor leaguer when he was in the <laughs> twin system, I will always have an appreciation for crazy Polish names that, uh, you know, <laughs> that people can't read, say, or spell. I won a bar trivia one night spelling uh, Mankiewicz properly. Yes, M-I-E-N-T-K-I-E-W-I-C-Z. I've had that memorized since I was like 12 years old. <laughs> Well played, sir. Uh, we wanted to briefly touch on Jacob DeGrom, who pitched seven shutout innings tonight, looked really good, has gone seven innings without giving up a run three of his last four starts. Um, you know, I think sometimes we forget how good DeGrom is because of the shiny newness of Cindergard and yes. because of the dreaminess. You, know, you can dream on Stephen Matz's left arm a little bit, too. Um but DeGrom has really looked fantastic the last few weeks. I mean, all season has been good, but the last few weeks especially, he's really turned it up. Yeah, and it's been... I I, I can't help myself. I'm tweeting about Mankiewicz as we record. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and you get to listen to me type to that. I do. <laughs> as do our listeners. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, no, it's so coming out of spring training, right? I was I was there a little bit later than usual this year, um, but I was there when his velocity was still very much not where it should be. <laughs> uh, and I I think you know he played it off a lot of the time, and I I totally understand. But you know it was a 
it was something that I think was fair to be concerned about. And it didn't come back in spring training, didn't come back early in the season. We've seen it drop a couple times along the way. And throughout all that, he's been fine. So, you know, I think we're probably two months past the point where I'm, uh, I'm worrying about it. It's still maybe there in, in the back of my mind a little bit. But, but yeah, now he's just been Jacob deGrom, you know, and especially lately where he's gotten himself. It would take a little bit of a drop from a couple of the other guys who are ahead of him to say that he's a Cy Young contender. Like, he and Syndergaard both are, especially if Kershaw doesn't pitch again this year. Right, which is looking more and more likely. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're right there. Uh, you know, at the moment as we record, Kyle Hendricks is at a 2.22 ERA. Bumgarner's at a 2.25. And Bumgarner has that sort of name recognition and appeal that you're going to have to beat him. You know, even if Hendricks comes back down to earth a little bit, um, you're going to have to beat Bumgarner by, I would think, a considerable margin to have a shot at the award just because... That's he, probably correct, yeah. He is who he is. But the Grom and Syndergaard both have a shot. I mean, Strasburg and Cueto do too. You know, but they're all they're all up in that tier. But, you know, if you told me on March 15th or 20th or whatever it was when I got on the plane to come back that in early August, Jacob DeGrom will be among guys who are in the Cy Young race, I would have been very happy to hear that. Um, of, course, he, of course, you would have been terrified to hear that we have no David Wright, no Lucas Duda, no Matt Harvey. But that one piece of information would make you very happy. Yes. Well, I mean, that was, just, that was a very specific thing. You know, at mm-hmm. that point in time, Duda wasn't a concern at all. You kind of thought, right, you know, I was taking the over on everything. <laughs> yes, you if were. there was an over under on right, I was taking the over. Games played, whatever stat, I took the over. I to was writing fair, the stats. If you took the games, if you uh, if one of the categories was neck surgeries, <laughs> you probably took the over on that too, and you would have won that one as well. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and it's just funny to think like that wasn't that long ago, but it feels like a long time ago. Yeah. You know, Harvey got knocked around by the Cardinals minor leaguers, and it was like, eh, it's spring training. Who cares? It doesn't matter. And that was probably, you know, I mean, we I don't know exactly the day that he first was like, hmm, I can't feel my hand. Yeah. Uh, but that maybe that was it, you know? Maybe maybe that was around the time that he really felt the effects of, of uh, the thoracic outlet syndrome. But, yeah, for DeGrom to be on this level uh, – it shouldn't be surprising, and I felt a little guilty of this early in the year myself. Like he's just so easy to take for granted. Yeah, he doesn't throw a hundred, right? He, uh, you know, especially not in spring training, right? Uh, you know, his uh, his hair is good, but it's not as magnificent as Cindergard's. He doesn't have the flashy nickname. He's not from Long Island. You know, there, there's a lot of other things going against him in terms of. He he's not forty three years old and kind of fat and hit a home run, right? You know, there's just he's he's a guy that can be a little bit easy to forget about sometimes, take for granted, like as you said, and he's just been so so good. So, thank goodness we have Degrom right now. Yes, did I tell my Degrom story on the podcast since when, when I'm focusing so much on spring training? I don't know. 
So it was, and I, well, whatever. If I told it, I'll tell it again. <laughs> but you know, we, I I go down there and I get the, you know, sort of like semi-useful credential from the Mets. Uh, a lot of it, a lot of the stuff down there is time spent with my camera. So during the games, I rarely like actually go into the photo booths at the uh, at Tradition Field. But you know, sometimes I'll go down there maybe for a couple innings or whatever. I'm more interested in watching, right? At that point, then and and it's not that many minor leaguers, all that kind of stuff. So this is inside Amazon Avenue at this point, but. <laughs> But anyway, there was a game that I went down, shot some photos in the first inning or two or whatever, and got up, and next to the Mets dugout uh, in spring training, it gets a little bit crowded. So there's a couple steps, and then the gate where you go from the photo booth back up into the seats. So I get up, and I go over to that, and uh, DeGrom had been sitting there all game. So I go over, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm sorry. Excuse me. And he gets up, moves. And uh, the security guard goes to open the gate, and DeGrom goes, pick a spot. And I didn't hear him. Mm -hmm. And I go, what was that? He goes, pick a spot. And I'm like, okay. And then he just, he kept a straight face for like a good three or four seconds. Mm -hmm. And then he just smiled, and he goes, no, I'm just messing with you. (laughs) Good for him. But for like a few seconds, I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna have to hate Jacob Degrom forever now." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but nope, he was just he was just fucking with me. Uh, have so, I ever have I ever told you my story of why I sort of irrationally hate Zach Wheeler forever? Uh, no, but please do. Uh, so I was at a Mets Diamondbacks game in Arizona a couple summers ago. The first uh-huh. when Wheeler first came up. And he came over to sign autographs for folks. I wasn't getting an autograph, but I was kind of in the general vicinity where he was signing autographs. And uh, some kid had a ball, and he asked him to sign it on the sweet spot. And he said, like, nope, I'm gone, and turned and walked away. Thinking, <laughs> because I guess when people sell balls, they want it signed in a certain spot. Uh... But, this, but this, like, 10-year-old kid clearly had no interest in selling a baseball. Like, he wasn't... I'm pretty sure that nobody went up to him and was like, hey, go ask Wheeler to sign this, like, right in the spot. I think he just knows where the sweet spot of baseball is because he's a 10-year-old kid. He's a huge fan. And right, Wheeler, right, right. like, basically told him to fuck off and walked away. So. Yeah. I get it. He was young. Still. Anyway, <laughs> now that we're off that story, uh, we have one more thing we want to talk about this week. Uh, we have not podcast. We took last week off. We have not podcasted since Mike Piazza's number was retired by the Mets last weekend. You were there at City Field that day. Uh, I'm jealous of that. I couldn't make it. Um, in addition, I have direct TV, and it was raining so hard that it, the signal was cutting out, so I couldn't even watch the ceremony live which was a huge bummer. But it got us talking about Mets and retired numbers. Now, as a big deal is made of this, because the Mets have only retired two players' numbers in their history, and those are their two players that are in the Hall of Fame as Mets, Tom Seaver, and now Mike Piazza. But we were talking before we started recording about who might be next in line to get their number retired. And the person that I asked Chris about 
has two things going for them. First of all, they're not in the Hall of Fame, but they're one of those players that I could see the Veterans Committee electing eventually because there's a lot of support there, especially among the sabermetrically inclined. And also, he's been a team employee for, geez, it's got to be coming up on 15, 16 years now, right? Yeah. Well, so... It's Keith Hernandez. It, yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> but and it went back before SNY existed. He was still. It wasn't the regular role that he has now. Right, but he, he was still around as yeah. a broadcaster. SNY debuted in two thousand five or six. I think five. Yeah. Yes, I it think, was five. I, I think I, was six the first year that all the games were in HD. I don't know the answer to that because I did not have an HD TV at that point. Okay. So I can't answer that, but I know I know what apartment I was in when when the first SNY game. So yes, Any, that was anybody under the age of like twenty nine is like, what do you mean there was baseball in in, not in standard age? definition? Yeah, right. Yeah, what? Man, those folks don't remember Fran Healy and <laughs> well, uh, Gary Gary Thorne though. Gary Thorne, yeah, he was excellent. He was, and uh, back when Seaver used to do yep. color every now and then, um, yeah, that's a whole other tangent to talk about one day. But yeah. Uh, Keith Hernandez seems to me to be the, the the guy who maybe is most likely to have his number retired. It would be uh, a shrewd move by the Mets for a couple of reasons. Uh, is his number retired by the Cardinals? Do you know? I don't think so. I don't think so. I'll, I'll check while we talk here, but I'm pretty sure that it's not. Yeah, because one of the things that bothers a lot of Mets fans about Keith is Keith's unending love for the Cardinals. Yes. And his ability to turn any conversation about the Mets into a conversation about how the Mets are inferior to the Cardinals, which happens every, especially every time St. Louis is is in town or they're playing the Cardinals that happens. But that even happens on like a regular broadcast almost every day. So then with the Cardinals being a classy organization. So if they would retire Keith's number, Keith might have to uh to cut that shit out a little bit more. Yeah. Which, which wouldn't be a bad thing for anybody. But you know, he's a guy who I mean, he's he's undoubtedly the best first baseman the Mets ever had. He's the best defensive first baseman of his era. He's been a good color analyst now on the with the team for minimum of ten years. I, I think it's probably closer to uh, to fifteen or sixteen that he's been involved uh, somehow with the Mets organization um, right. as a broadcaster. And he's a guy that has. Uh, <laughs> Hilariously, due to Seinfeld, he has a uh, a certain pop culture cachet that few baseball players have, especially baseball players who are, you know, nearing if not already 60 years old. Right. He's He's Keith Hernandez. Yeah, exactly. He's Keith Hernandez. And uh, (laughs) so do you see that as a possibility? Because the Mets are so precious with with their retired numbers. Do you see that as a possibility? Well, so having been there and, and looked at, and I like what they did putting them at the top of the uh, left field promenade. Agreed. To finally getting them out from being hidden behind people standing and drinking on the not party city anymore right. deck. Um, M&M deck? Yeah. I don't think they even call it that, but it is it is certainly sponsored by M&M's. Yeah. Uh, by the way, he, he's been broadcasting with the Mets since 99. Okay, so yeah, so looking at that up there right mm-hmm. now, I'm sort of envisioning the like a hybrid of the Kiner one and a uniform number. 
where this is not exactly just retiring his number, but <laughs> where it's like half microphone, half number 17, or like a microphone with number 17 on it. That would be cool. Yeah, I don't know if they would... But that, I know, it, somebody pointed out recently, too, that they should put Bob Murphy up there next to Kiner. They probably should. Even Lindsay. Yeah. I mean, I guess at a certain point. But that, I mean, that is the, that's the holy grail. But yeah, yeah. in terms of strictly number retirement, um, aside from that semi-creative idea, I think <laughs> I, if I had a bet, I would still say no. Like, they've just been so stingy with it. And I get it. You don't want to retire a million numbers. You don't want to be the Yankees who are going to be out of single-digit numbers very soon. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and that's, you know, that that's fine. But, but who are, like, okay, so... If if you were a Will Pond, first of all, I'm sorry for even implying that you're a nice guy. I don't want to imply that you'd possibly be a Will Pond <laughs> in any situation. But uh, you know, who are the who are the Mets that you think are at least worth the conversation about? I mean, it's it's got to be the '86 guys, right? I would think so. I would. Think I mean, I Carter still... and Hernandez, right? And then and Strawberry, Strawberry, yeah, good, yeah. With shots, yeah. I would, but I would say that if I had a bet right now, the next number retired by the Mets is David Wright. You're probably right about that, but but here's the thing: if they're if they're going to go with their we're only retiring Hall of Famers numbers, right? Then that's not going to happen. Right at one point was on a Hall of Fame path, but with this in, with these injuries, I can't see that happening. Yeah, mainly with the playing time. I it's he certainly was good enough. When healthy, uh, and health wasn't really a big issue until the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, but it you know how could he not? And I guess this is a discussion for down the road at some point. But how could David Wright not have his number retired by the Mets? You know? Yeah. Like even if even if he doesn't really play much more the rest of the you know worst case scenario say he doesn't play anymore and you know that it's just that the playing time falls short where he wasn't where he was excellent but he wasn't like mike trout good for for like five or six years yeah like trout would have a case if he got hurt really badly that he would be a hall of famer today ted berg would make that case for many times over yes <laughs> and i i would too but so would i yeah but yeah say he falls short of that threshold I still don't see how you can't re you know, how you wouldn't retire his number, you know. Um, so that being the case, then you know that might open the door. It's kind of funny to think about not making the Hall of Fame opening doors for other players because <laughs> the odds of making the Hall of Fame is the exact opposite of that. That is true. That is now true. I think Bagwell will get in next summer, probably. Um, but yeah, it's. So if I if I'm going against what I would bet would be the next number retired by the Mets, then you know th there's a shot of it. It's kind of you know strange to be in a spot where other players have worn those numbers. You know, right. 31 hadn't been worn until well, well, never. You know, but right. it hadn't been worn up until the point that it was retired. When did they retire Stengel's and um, Hodge's numbers? Do you know offhand? Uh, not off the top of my head, but it's, the internet knows. It's been a while, though. 
Yeah. I love that the retired number pages, now that I've looked at a couple of them. And by mm. the way, the Cardinals did retire 17 for Dizzy Dean. So oh, okay. Keith never wore it there. Um, that's so, another organization that's going to have to, at some point, let players wear the numbers that are retired because they're going to run out of numbers. Yeah. Their whole outfield wall is covered in them. <laughs> so Seaver was retired in 88. Hodges is, Hodges is number. Oof. Trying to say that a couple times. <laughs> that's that's almost harder than left-handed right fielder. Yeah. <laughs> which came up earlier and also hard to say. But Hodges was retired in 73, and Stango was retired in 65. Okay. So the 90s are the only decade they didn't retire a number. Yeah. Um, so leaving aside the 86 guys... Is there anybody else that you can make a case for the Mets retiring their number? Hmm. I'm not saying they would do it, but it should should be a part of that conversation. I feel like Alfonso was beloved enough. That was my answer, too. Sorry. No, it's fine. No, I I, I, <laughs> I think you're right. You know, um, maybe Jerry Kuzman. Yeah. In the conversation there. Um but yeah, Alfonso was with the team for long enough and had, man, 21-year-old Edgardo Alfonso in 1995. Yeah. That makes me feel old. <laughs> yep. But but yeah, he was good enough on good Mets teams. And then the drop-off didn't happen until after he left. You right. Know, he, was, he was a guy who, age 28, was his last great year, which is just weird. But yeah, man, 2000. Because you you look at it right, and and given the history of the team, the pennants are are significant. Yes. So he had his career year as they went on to do to win that one. And uh, yeah, that that would definitely be a guy. I would make the case that if he didn't leave when he left, Reyes would be in the conversation as well. Like yeah. Reyes and Wright together. Would have probably been in the conversation, but that'll never happen now. Right. Yeah. No. Even if Reyes hits 800 next year, right, he's, he's not having his number retired. Yeah. No. Even though they brought him back, the whole, you know, the whole everything. Yeah, and, and even t- even taking that uh, situation and putting it aside, the fact that he didn't listen to the Mets counter offer or didn't give the Mets a chance to make a counter offer. When he left in free agency, it would depend on who you believe in that story. But, you know, the way he left, leaving for more money in Miami, and then especially how that turned out with him being traded the next year, everything about it is just messy. Yeah. Ray had a very messy post-Mets career. And even his return to the Mets has been messy, so that's that's not happening. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else. I, I bet there are people out there who would say John Franco. Right. I'm not one of those people. Yeah, no, I'm 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 with you. I think giving up the number was a very nice thing that he did, and it's retired for the person who it should be retired for. Yeah. Um. I guess that's the end of my list. Yeah, I think. Hmm. Because there are, there are guys like I associate Al Leiter with those great Mets teams. But he yeah. was he pitched for so many other teams, right? 
Uh, oh, here's a question for you, and this is this is a relevant question. How have we gone this long and not said this? Will number 15 be retired in seven or eight years? Ah. Well, when Beltran goes in the hall, hopefully as a Met. You make a good point. I, I still think he will. I think he's definitely going in. I, I mean, I still think he will go in as a Met. Mm-hmm. Which is so bizarre. I mean, it makes it makes sense from like a number standpoint. He had his best years as a Met. But the fans hated him so much, even when he was great. For right. reasons I will never understand, that it's going to be so weird. Like, it's the opposite of Piazza. Piazza was good for multiple teams, but loved playing in New York and was so embraced here that he had to go in as a Met. Right. And Beltran is by default going in as a Met. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of an odd thing. But to me, if if that happens, then you got to do it. But it's it's just sort of that, that I would I would... Beltron, the Hall of Famer to me, has significantly lower odds of having that done than David Wright, the non-Hall of Famer. I have to think about that for a second. Say that again? The Beltron is a Hall of Famer wearing a Mets hat. I don't see how you couldn't do it. Okay. But I would still put higher odds on David Wright <laughs> yeah. having his number yeah. retired. Yeah, that's probably correct. And I'm sure some people have worn number 15 since, I can't think offhand, somebody on the team right now is wearing 15, aren't they? Yeah, Reynolds, I, I'm, I'm cheating, I have mess by the numbers, an excellent resource. <laughs> yes. Uh, I have that open. I'm pretty sure Gary Cohen had it open during the game tonight as well. well I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure that some, some stat guy in the booth did and was whispering it in his ear. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> but yeah, Val Pascucci wore it, Fred Lewis <laughs> Fred Lewis wore it oh, man. in 2012. He played for the Mets. Uh, Darnell wore it. I completely it. forgot that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah, Darnell wore it. Bob Guerin wore it uh, last year as the bench coach. And then Matt Reynolds has it now. What's the, since we've gone down this rabbit hole of non-retired numbers, what's the oldest one to have been? It's probably like Turk Wendell. Screw it. Retire his number. Nobody <laughs> wants 99 anyway. That's true. Has anybody that, worn double zero since... Uh... No, that was only Tony Clark. Yeah. He's the only one. Quintanilla wore regular zero. He did. After, after Ordonez. Well after. Hmm. Most of the, the 20s have gotten... Mostly abused. 24, nobody's worn since Ricky Henderson. That is not getting retired. But no, it's nobody's not. worn it since him. You know, I guess that's sort of a... Like, if they were to do it, it would be for William Mays. That's true. See, I'm almost surprised the Mets haven't done that, because that seems like a very Wilpon thing to me. Right. To cash in on another New York baseball franchise. <laughs> right. Uh, for their own uh, justification. And no one's worn uh, eight since Desi Relliford. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that, that now getting into numbers that people generally don't choose to wear. No one wore ten since Gary Sheffield. Uh, that that that's an interesting one. Certainly not that he would have it retired, but no. But that that number hasn't gone any place. No one's worn number fourteen since Ken Boyer. Well, but no players have worn. That's true because because of Gil Hodges too. 
Oh, no, no. Sorry, what, 10? Terry wears 10. Oh, Terry wears 10. You're right now. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just looking at players here. Nobody's worn 46 since Tyler Clifford. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no one's worn 59 since Johnny Manel. I mean, yes. sorry, no one's worn uh, sorry, 19, rather. He was the 59th player to wear that number. This is great radio, guys. Yes. So with that, do we have anything else on the agenda? <laughs> no, I think we're okay. <laughs> uh, no one's worn 25 since Chin Lung Hu. Let's just put that out there. There we go. The last Met player to have a press conference until, who was it? Ah. <laughs> uh, was it the was Cespedes it, Was it Cespedes? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> was it really? I think it might be. No, it must have been Kadire. Yeah. No, 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 I'm sorry. It was right when he when he signed his extension. Yeah, yeah. I'm your host this week, Brian Renzi. If you're a longtime Mets fan, there's a good chance you know that the main piece that the Mets sent to Florida to bring Mike Piazza to Queens was Preston Wilson. What you may not remember is that, unlike Jeff Getz and Ed Yarnall, the other players the Mets sent in the trade, Wilson actually played for the big league Mets before being shipped out and actually had a historic start to his career in blue and orange. You're pretty likely to remember that Preston Wilson was Mookie Wilson's stepson, but less remembered is that he was also his nephew, as Preston was in fact the son of Mookie Wilson's brother, and Mookie ended up marrying his brother's ex-wife and then raising Preston. Either way, since we all know that Mookie can do no wrong, everyone in the family was okay with this uncommon situation, and Preston grew into one heck of a high school baseball player. In his senior season at Earhart High School in Bamberg, Georgia, he hit 530 with 86 RBIs in just 36 games, including seven grand slams, which tied a national record. So the Mets were more than happy to snatch up Wilson with the ninth overall pick in the 1992 draft. He continued to show impressive power through the minors despite playing consistently two to three years younger than league average age. He debuted as a third baseman, hitting 17 homers in just 74 games, split between the Appy League and the New York Penn League as an 18-year-old. He became a 20-20-20 guy in the Sally League, hitting 20 bombs and stealing 20 bags at 20 years old. Then, in 1997, at age 22, he smashed 30 long balls between St. Lucie and Binghamton while transitioning to center field, the position he would eventually hold down in the majors. In the Binghamton portion of a season, he hit career highs of 286 with a 900 OPS, showing an encouraging upward trend. Because of his pedigree, there was a fair amount of anticipation among Mets fans for his arrival, making him their highest profile prospect at the time. When he did make it to Queens in May of 1998, he made quite an impression. In fact, he had the greatest first two games for a hitter in the history of baseball to that point, by a couple of different measures. He reached base seven times in his first nine plate appearances with two doubles, four singles, two RBI, three runs scored, a walk, and a stolen base. No one in history had ever had a 750 batting average and 778 OBP after their first two career games. Smallest of sample sizes, sure, but don't be a killjoy. That was kind of cool. 
All right, if you're a stickler for strict def dictionary definitions as well, Wilson's bat quickly became cool as he went over his next 12. And suddenly on May 22, he wasn't a Met anymore. There may have been a slight amount of wistfulness among Mets fans, including yours truly, that there would not, in fact, be a multi-generational Wilson family legacy being played out in Queens. But thank you for your service, Preston, and hello, Mike Piazza. Wilson went on to become a nice player who finished second in the Rookie of the Year balloting, went 20-20 twice and 30-30 once, and even led the NL with 141 RBIs for Colorado one year. But his final slash line over his 10-year career was 264, 329, 468, which was pedestrian for that era. So getting a franchise-changing Hall of Fame player in exchange for less chatter about the Wilson father-son connection was, you might say, a good deal. The Piazza deal wasn't the only trade Wilson was involved in, which helped to drastically change the fortunes of a franchise. When the Marlins sent him to Colorado in the 2002 offseason, they got back Juan Pierre, the spark plug that played a huge role in the Marlins championship season the following year. But Wilson would get his championship as well, shortly after the lowest point of his career. He was outright released in the middle of August 2006 after being a disappointing free agent signing for the Astros, and he was quickly scooped up at that point by the Cardinals, who suddenly had a hole in their lineup with Jim Edmonds sidelined by ongoing post-concussion symptoms from crashing into a wall. Wilson refound his power stroke down the stretch for St. Louis, hitting eight dingers and 111 at-bats, and got one last crack at the hearts and minds of the Queens faithful. In the NLCS against the Mets, Wilson got the key hit in Game 5, a double to drive in the go-ahead run, knocking Mets starter Tom Glavin out of the game. With the win, the Cardinals took a 3-2 series lead, and we all know what happened from there. Today, Wilson is a color commentator for the Marlins, so if you have MLB TV or get Florida broadcast, consider switching over to their broadcast when the Mets are in Miami. I know, GKR for life, but come to the Miami broadcast for the superior camera angle directly behind the pitcher, where you can see truer movement of the pitches. And stay for some commentary from the guy who brought the Mets the best hitting catcher in baseball history. This has been Forgotten Mets. I'm Brian Renzi. Happy Mike Piazza weekend, everybody. Hello, my fans, and welcome to the Weekly Stat, the post-trade deadline edition of the Weekly Stat. Uh, as I record this on Monday night, we wrapped up our trade deadline, oh, about 10 hours ago. The Mets made two moves. They acquired uh, John Neese for Antonio Bastardo, because the poetic justice of baseball just had to come through. And more, much more significantly, they acquired Jay Bruce from the Reds in exchange for Dilson Herrera and Max Wotel, their fifth round pick from last or third round pick from 2015. Um, so as much as fun as it would be to mock Nice, his nose, and his uh, the awkwardness that will result as he returns from the Pirates, given his post Met defensive comments, uh, I wanted to focus much, much more on the Jay Bruce trade. 
and I, I need to be honest up front, I absolutely detest this trade. I think it's the worst Met trade in recent memory. I think it's one of the worst trades in all of baseball in recent memory. And I'm going to outline the primary reason why. And you can probably guess what it is if you've read anything over the last few days or participated in any common thread during the trade deadline. It's Jay Bruce's defense. Or rather, his total lack of ability to play any defense at this point of his career. And there, there's already been an article written about Fangraphs. We can all go to his Fangraphs page and simply read off the stats. But I wanted to contextualize for our listeners just how brutal Bruce has been in right field this year. Um, and not just this year, over the past three seasons. Uh, and people will also uh, often chime in saying that defensive metrics don't stabilize for three years, and there's some validity to that. And while his numbers might not be as terrible over the past two seasons, that being 2014 and 2015, they're still very bad, and lend more credence to the idea that he actually has been as awful as he has been this season. So, first off, how just how bad has Jay Bruce been in the field this season? In terms of defensive runs saved, he's the third worst in baseball. The only two players worse are Alexi Ramirez, who's old and has been bad for years, and Brad Miller, who isn't a shortstop, despite the Rays continuing to play him there. Um, he's worse than Matt Kemp. He's worse than Eric Ibar. He's worse than Adonis Garcia. He's worse than Alcides Escobar. He's worse than Starling Castro. Basically, any defensively inept player you can think of, Jay Bruce has been worse by DRS this season. By Uziar150, things are very slightly more optimistic, but still horrendous. Here, Bruce is only the sixth worse. Uh, Miller and Ramirez are both, again, worse than him along with Jonathan VR, Denard Spann, and Jordy Mercer. Uh, but Bruce slots in at the sixth horse in baseball with a negative 16.0 UZR per 150. Again, worse than Matt Kemp, worse than Adonis Garcia, worse than the diminished Andrew McCutcheon, worse than Yunel Escobar, worse than Nick Castellanos, worse than, again, literally any of the common horrible defensive player tropes we hear about. Okay, that's just this season. Oh, oh, excuse me. Uh, we should also look at his total defensive value just in terms of the runs he's lost, which is calculated based on UZR with a positional adjustment, and there Bruce is the second worst. Eric Hosmer is the only player less valuable uh, in terms of the defensive runs he's cost his team. There's some sketchiness there, of course. One uh, first base defensive metrics are always a little bit wonky, um, but Bruce is... Uh, a very close second, and those two are significantly separated from the rest of the pack in terms of defensive ineptitude. So I think you get the picture. Bruce can't expletive play the outfield anymore. He's horrible. Even if you regress things slightly and say, oh, he's only maybe a negative eight run defender, that's still bottom ten in baseball. That's still as bad as Matt Kemp or Justin Upton or uh, Melky Cabrera 
or any of the other horrible fielding outfielders that immediately come to mind when you ask the question, who's the worst fielding outfielder in baseball? To further contextualize this, let's look back at the last three seasons. So over the last three seasons, so it should be 2014 to 2016, if we wanted to find the worst fielders in baseball over that time by those same metrics, uh, Bruce again appears low on every single list. Defensive run saves is the most favorable, favorable towards him. There he's only the 19th worst at negative 14. Uh, not quite in the Tory Hunter, Matt Kent, Ryan Howard range of terrible, but still worse than guys like Logan Morrison or Alex Rios or uh, Melky Cabrera. Those ilk. So not quite. Uh, he's actually worse than Hanley Ramirez was at shortstop the last time he played shortstop. That's just how horrible he's been in the outfield, even if it's not as drastic as the numbers this year alone are. By Uziar150, you get a similar picture. Here, he's only the 14th worst over the past three years. Uh, guys like Tori Hunter and Matt Kemp and Nick Castellanos are still worse than him, so is uh, Hanley Ramirez at shortstop. But then guys like Alexei Ramirez, Melky Cabrera, Gene Segura are all better defenders than Jay Bruce has been over the past three seasons. And if we sort uh, finally by just defensive runs uh, cost, which is again just an UZR calculation with um, a positional adjustment, Bruce is the second worst defensive player in baseball over the past three seasons. The only worst one is Matt Kemp and the margin is two runs, less than two runs. Bruce can't play defense. The Mets are requiring him to put him in right field and shift Curtis Granderson, who is another horrible fielding uh, corner outfielder, to center field. I can rant more about this trade, but the stats we want to talk about are just Bruce's defense. I'll leave the extrapolation to you on why this trade makes absolutely no sense. And that is your depressing stat. get a different perspective on the Jay Bruce for Dilson Herrera trade, we reached out to one of the other SB Nation sites, Reds Reporter, and we got uh, one of their very, very talented staffers to come on the show. So we have Wick Terrell on the show this week to talk all about um, the trade from uh, the perspective of a Reds fan, and it's it's really interesting. I uh, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. I think it changed my perspective of the trade considerably. Not that I'm in love with it now, but the perspective really did change after hearing the interview. You can follow him on Twitter at Wick Terrell and uh, enjoy. Joining us this week on Amazing Avenue Audio is Wick Terrell from Red Reporter, our SB Nation sister site that covers the Reds, as you might guess by the name and the subject matter of the week. Uh, Wick, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So... We'll start with Jay Bruce. You know, the Mets went and made a deal. They were rumored to be making several deals, uh, but they made one big one. You know, bringing John East back was sort of a, a footnote in comparison, uh, and they bring Jay Bruce over for Dilson Herrera and Max Wotel. So we are about to get introduced to Bruce. Uh, as we record, he's going to play his first game for the Mets tonight. He made an appearance today in front of the media, but 
overall, what kind of player have we gotten here to watch? Uh, that that's that's uh, Jay Bruce has been God. He's been he's pretty much been the reason why I ended up stumbling onto Red Reporter like seven or eight years ago. Because uh, when he came up through the minors, he was the uh, the number one overall rated hitting prospect by Baseball America before making his debut as a a twenty two year old and actually a twenty one year old. Um, but he's uh, when he's a swinging a hot bat, which is pretty much what he's been doing for the entire first part of the year. Um, he's the kind of guy who can literally carry an offense. Um, and it's he's had such a weird three years. It's been so hard to find not only what he is, but also how to value him. Um, the fact that he had that $13 million option tacked on for 2017 was also uh, uh, such a, a hot-button point on trying to place value on Bruce because, you know, mid-2014, mid-2015, when he's had such issues on offense, uh, that looked initially like something that would be declined and something was kind of a uh, an added-on uh, uh, negative to his contract. Uh, whereas the first part of his 2016 season obviously kind of made that a little bit of a moot point. But um, he's streaky. He's not the best on-base player of all time, um, but he does have power that though his stats skew towards Great American Ballpark, I think that's more of a comfort thing than a small ballpark thing because uh, when he connects with the ball, he can hit it an absolute ton. Um, more than anything, he's uh, one of the better guys in baseball to follow. He's very, very frank with all the reporters. I'm interested to see how that plays in New York as well because he's a great interview regardless of uh, whether he's hot or whether he's not. And uh, I'm hoping that he can ride out this hot streak for the rest of the year for you guys. Yeah, that, that would definitely be fine with us. Uh, but his introductory press conference was entertaining at a couple points. There was uh, there was a moment that he was asked about the difference between the small market and the big one, and he made a joke right away, like, oh, it's, it's, it's the same, right? Isn't it? Isn't it the same? Some, <laughs> something along those lines. That was good. Um, and he also he was asked about his production with runners in scoring position. Uh, you know, if you've followed the Mets at all this year, it's been a story that's it just won't go away because they haven't gotten better at it. Uh, you know, personally, I'm sick of hearing about it, but it's all that gets talked about kind of on a daily yeah. basis. Yeah. It's one of those narratives. The Reds have been up against that with the, the Cardinals the last four or five years. It seems because the Cardinals for some reason every year, year after year, and I haven't even checked it this year. So I don't know if it's finally cratered and that might be why they're having troubles, but they've been consistently hitting 330, 340. The Reds have consistently been the bottom of the barrel hitting 220, 245, something like that. Uh, and Bruce, for the most of that, has had his struggles with runners in scoring position. Flash forward to this year, and for some reason he's hitting the cover off the ball when there's runners on base. And I know uh, I've seen a couple things with Curtis Granderson specifically about how uh, he and Bruce, if you took the last two years, it's almost an inverse um, of how they performed with it. And obviously that's one of those statistics that you don't expect to really uh, be telling too much. It's not something that uh, uh, you can really create as a skill. It's something that you kind of expect to normalize. Uh, but sometimes players just get in that groove and they do it and it works. And that's been Jay Bruce's story for the first half of 2016. Yeah, he uh, so in his response to the question about hitting him with runners in scoring position, he used the phrase selection bias, which was nice to hear coming from a player. <laughs> you know, is he, does he have a reputation of being sort of a, a stat guy or aware of it? Uh, he's got a reputation as sitting next to Joey Votto and being very good friends with him uh, and talking about baseball a lot. Uh, I feel like Votto obviously has the much larger reputation of not just being a statistical darling, but also somebody who tries to be and researches that stuff and you know carries Ted Williams' novel or his book around uh, in, in his bag before games every single day. And I know Bruce at times has admitted that he's tried to, to – 
soak up as much from Votto as he, as he possibly could over the last eight years. And I think Mike Petrello from uh, MLB.com actually took a look at why Bruce was producing as well as he had been so far this year. And he's using uh, the other way. He's hitting the ball left field significantly more this year than he has the last two years. Um, and I don't know how much that has to do with uh, the knee injury that, you know, sapped everything from him in 2014, or if it's something that's finally started to catch on with him and, and hitting behind Votto in the lineup every day. Uh, one specific thing that I'm not sure Mike actually mentioned, uh, but something we've picked up on is that Bruce is choking up with two strikes, which is something he never did before this season. Um, Votto kind of picked up doing it about two or three years ago uh, on a little bit more exaggerated basis, but that does seem like that's one little thing that is kind of at least uh, uh, trickled down into Bruce's ear enough to where he started pulling off this year too. And um, I can only, I can only imagine the conversations the two of those guys have had over the years uh, about hitting, and I'm sure some of it's soaked up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And choking up with two strikes, that is music to Keith Hernandez's ears. I mean, oh, I'm he, sure. <laughs> he, he is a big fan of that, so <laughs> that, that'll be good. Um, the one thing that we've heard a lot about, I guess, that is the knock, and I know you, you wrote about it a little bit on the site just in writing about the trade, um, is defense, right? So we know that four months of defensive metrics aren't exactly conclusive on a guy's skill level and and what the future holds but you know the Mets aren't really well known for their defense and they are they're going to be playing somebody in center field who isn't Juan Lagares because he's hurt and even if he were healthy you know you'd probably have either Curtis Granderson or Michael Conforto out there so I think people are a little extra concerned about outfield defense um is Jay Bruce nearly as bad as defensive run saved and UZR suggest so far this year. Yeah. If you, if you just look at the numbers, it's almost impossible to defend Bruce's defense. It's not a case of him playing left field, center field and right field and some first base and DHing some. So there's, uh, you know, there's positional adjustments in there that may cause those. He's an everyday right fielder and he has been for, you know, uh, the better part, I guess he came up as a center fielder initially, but he's been a right fielder for seven plus years. So there's no variation in that. Um, starting in 2014, uh, his numbers really took a hit and it's hard to really pinpoint because 2014, he had a torn meniscus in his knee, missed two weeks, came back way too quickly. His offense cratered. His defense was terrible as is. Um, and 2015 wasn't a whole lot better in that regard. 2014 also coincides with Billy Hamilton playing next to him every single day though. And so there's been a lot of talk about how much the fact that he's got a center fielder that can cover that much ground next to him especially playing in a home ballpark that has a tiny outfield to begin with, how much that's impacting those overall numbers. Um, Bruce isn't a great fielder. He's got a very good arm. That's one thing that's not ever going to be a problem with him in right field. Um, I think he's been a little bit bitten by the fact that he hasn't had to cover that much ground over the last two years. Uh, If you look back to, I guess, uh, 2013, which was his last positive year, that was the one year the Reds rolled out uh, Shinsu Chu in center field, who was a right fielder who had never played center field before at all. Um, and Bruce that year was a positive defender, but I also remember him having to cover a heck of a lot more ground that year than he did since Billy Hamilton's taken over. I think he gets dinged for that a little bit. Um, he's not a plus defender out there. He doesn't take the best of routes sometimes. He, he's a little hesitant at the wall, uh, but I don't think he's the kind of guy who's going to literally cost you a run uh, so often that you can recognize it. Um, but I do think there's a little bit of statistical variance in those numbers that kind of cause him to be that bad. Uh, but I think it's a little bit overblown at this point. All right. Well, that that's relatively encouraging, I think. 
I know the uh, there was a piece on Fangraphs earlier, and it's well now it's August, but last month uh, where they took a look a little bit and you know provided plenty of video and just looked at the defense overall and it looked like going back on the ball and as you mentioned you know sort of a little maybe a little bit of a wall issue uh, yeah that that didn't look so great but coming in on the ball he looked you know maybe not I don't want to say gold glove because that (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a stretch but coming in on the ball he was capable of making some nice plays he seems to you know he's very comfortable with the sliding catch in front of him uh based on you know that that limited amount of video that they had there right and i i almost when i read that article the first thing that popped in my head was i wonder if it's just because he's a creature of habit and he spent eight years playing in a tiny right field in great american ballpark where breaking back on a ball is kind of useless because if it's over your head odds are it's out of the ballpark as is anyway um and i think they generally play a fairly deep right field uh out there anyway so there's not a whole lot of ground for a ball to drop in over his head there and i wonder if that's just kind of become uh, uh, either positionally, uh, either a mandate from the dugout uh, or just repetition after repetition, something that uh, he's kind of perfected the one thing that he knows he's going to have to do. Uh, and that's kind of parlayed itself uh, into how bad those numbers are. But um, I, I was looking up just random stats earlier and, and checking his, uh, his speed rating, which is somewhat outdated now on fan graphs, but he's actually sporting a career high at that. So uh, in terms of base running, he's, it's not like he's lost a step there. So I think if he came up as a center fielder, that's a career high. He's still got a great arm. I think he'll be serviceable out there. I don't think it's uh, I don't think it'll be Bartolo Colon in right field, so to speak. Um, I think there's a little bit more upside <laughs> than that. Uh, but no, I don't think he's going to be a gold glover, but I think he's uh, the, the fact that he would be a liability at this point, I think is a little bit of a stretch. All right. Well, that is encouraging to hear. Um, so I'm curious to get your take shifting gears a little bit from Bruce to the players that the Mets gave up to get him. Uh, you know, what's your take on Dilson Herrera and Max Wotel? And, you know, is it disappointing the way that all kind of transpired over the, the course of the day on Monday? Um, is it disappointing that Nimmo wasn't in the deal? And I guess we'll never really know who the other two prospects would have been if it were Nimmo. Um you know, I think we can probably assume Wotel was one of them either way, but we, we don't know for sure. But Yeah, uh, it's, it, yeah it seems like Wotel was definitely going to be one of them either way, which is interesting is that makes me think that the Reds see something in them that, that, that they identified, you know, if we're getting a wild card in this one uh, and, and a lottery ticket, so to speak, that they wanted him to be that one. And uh, what he was, a, it was an overslot signed high school draftee. Uh, two years ago, and obviously, if you're a lanky lefty who can hit 95 with your fastball, uh, even if everything else is kind of out of whack when you're 19 years old, that's somebody who uh, you can never have too much of in the system. And I think the Reds have certainly identified him as somebody who's got upside. And so, from that end, uh, you know, for a second piece, I think everybody was pretty generally happy um, in that regard with the return. Uh, in regards to Dilson Herrera, I feel like there was it was really hard to sift through. Uh, how much of the reaction was that the first trade fell through, then everybody thought they were getting Nemo and Herrera, and then they only ended up with Herrera. I felt like some of the backlash kind of landed on Herrera's lap for not being uh, Herrera and Nemo um, initially, and there was a little bit of you know air let out of the balloon when they found that they weren't getting both when all that kind of sh- you know shuffled out right at the deadline yesterday. Right. Uh, but but kind of you know taking a step back, you're getting a guy who was a top 50 prospect by Baseball America two years ago. 
who is 22 years old. Uh, he's already exhausted his rookie eligibility, um, but he's seven months younger than Jesse Winker, who's the best hitter in the red system. And when you look at their minor league numbers next to each other, even Pacific Coast League stats included, uh, they're pretty dang similar. And we're talking about one guy who's a left fielder who's a bat-only guy who we've been fawning over and waiting to be in our lineup for years uh, versus a, you know an up-the-middle, uh, very valuable defensive second baseman guy whose offensive profile looks pretty dang similar to Jesse Winker's. Um, you realize, okay, well, you're not going to find him on those new top 100 lists. He's not brand new and shiny because he came up so early. Right. And I think the polish was kind of off on a little of that. And so people who were just looking at it on the surface were like, oh, well, what is this? What's going on? But you dig a little deeper. Herrera is a very talented guy. Uh, you know, he's penciled in to be the second baseman of the future for the Mets from everything I can tell. Um, he's got a speed power combo. Uh, he, he reminds me a lot, the more I look at him, of what Brandon Phillips was um, when he was that age. He's not a great base stealer, but he probably can steal some bases. Uh, but he's got gap-to-gap power, and you put him in Great American Ballpark, and that's going to play very, very well. Um, I, I think it's a pretty good get, all told. Uh, you know, it's not just trading Jay Bruce in a vacuum. It's not just trading uh, the lead leader in RBIs in, in a vacuum. He's the, what, the sixth piece to be traded of a rebuilding Reds team. Um, so the Reds had showed their cards. Everybody knew he was going to get traded. They didn't have a whole lot of bargaining power on their end anyway. Uh, not to mention how poorly he'd been for 2014-2015. Um, considering all those uh, factors, I think getting a guy like Herrera with five-year service time is – that's a pretty good get. And uh, I, I'm – you know, it's not ideal because the Reds have accrued so many uh, infielders you know, between trades and drafting over the last couple of years. They're stocked on shortstop, second baseman, third taste, and types. Um, so it's not a clear fill-and-need guy, which I think probably irritated some people. Uh but the talent's there, and I think the return overall is going to be good. The only problem is now they have to trade more people to kind of sort out the spots to free the holes for them, and that's where the uh, the caveat kind of comes in. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. I, I don't know the red system uh, very well overall, but Dilson Herrera to me was very, you know, I was very comfortable going into next year, assuming that he would be pretty much given the second base job. Uh, at least to start the year. You know, one thing I pointed out, and I don't think he didn't really have significant detractors, but, you know, when he spent time with the Mets, it wasn't like he tore the cover off the ball, but he held his own at a very young age. Right. And, you know, I the one thing, like I'm on board with this trade from the Mets end, um, but I was, when I saw it was Herrera instead of Nimmo, I was a little bummed out. Uh, yeah. You know, and it, was a spot where we had this sort of perfect scenario, you know, letting Murphy go regardless of what he's done since then. Uh, you know, anybody who would have expected that, I think would have been <laughs> a little bit crazy. Uh, I hope they bet on it and made a lot of money on it if they did. Yeah. But, but we went from a spot where the Mets had, you know, they let him walk, they make the trade for Walker. And then you assume the same thing will happen with Walker. You know, he, he gets a QO probably leaves doesn't you know it, it declines at least uh and then Herrera takes over and it was just sort of this nice succession of players where you figured they weren't really going to be losing much in terms of production at the major league level pick up a couple extra draft picks along the way and then you know Herrera was going to be the guy yeah um, so yeah. in that in that regard I think the Reds did well you know like Phillips has what one more year left 
Yeah, he's got one year. Uh, well, yeah, he's under contract for 2017, and I think 13 million, maybe 14 million. He was 13 this year. Um, okay. So but yeah, that, like what, that, you, what, you, what you were saying, that's kind of the same way we were reacting when we heard Nemo was coming over. It was almost that one for one where, okay, if Bruce is, you know, out the door, getting Nemo in, hey, that's that's a guy you can slot it at center field or right field, and you've got a direct replacement for him coming right in that's ready made, uh, and then to get Herrera. And not trade Zach Cozart or trade Brandon Phillips, and now you've got Herrera and Jose Peraza, who was the the big get in the Todd Frazier trade of uh, this past summer. You know the the two biggest trades they've made uh, in the last you know six months brought in great prospects in terms of talent, both of whom are still blocked, and so it's like they've had two different trade windows to free up spots for them, and they haven't done it. So they've they've pulled in a lot of talent, but they still have to clear paths for both these guys, and that was kind of the the initial air coming out of the balloon I was talking about, because at least with Nemo, you can slot him in somewhere. You can put him in left if you need to and move Adam Nafal over to right field. But now it's like they've got an even more imperfect roster than they did before, albeit one that's got a lot more AAA talent than it did. Yeah. Yeah, I think if there's anything to encourage Reds fans here, it's that the ceiling on Herrera is higher than it is on Nemo. Uh, and I, I like Nemo. Um, you know, he, he certainly has gotten mixed reviews, especially over the last few years. Uh, you know, he didn't really put everything together. Um, and then, you know, he kind of broke out mostly when he got to Vegas, you know, not so much when he was there last year, but certainly in his time there this year. And it's always hard to isolate that Pacific coast league performance, especially in that ballpark. Yeah. Um, so, you know, from our end, we were uh, we were a little you know bitter that it was Nim or sorry that it was Herrera instead of Nimmo. So I think hopefully that's encouraging. Um, you know, one thing that happened last year uh, the Cespedes trade, Michael Fulmer has developed into you know an excellent starting pitcher for the Tigers, and it's like that's okay. You know, I that's how it's supposed to work. I hope Dilson Herrera doesn't come back to haunt the Mets in the way that Daniel Murphy has so far. But, you know, I, I hope he gets a chance and, and, you know, has a very good career for the Reds. Yeah, for sure. And it's uh, for, for one final point on this, I, I, it, I couldn't help it. It popped in my head yesterday and I had to look it up. Uh, the last time the Reds traded a 29 year old right fielder to New York, uh, it was Paul O'Neill. Um, and that worked out pretty well <laughs> for, for New York after he got to the Yankees. Um, and I looked it up, and Paul O'Neill had a, uh, a 111 OPS plus in his time in Cincinnati and was traded to New York at age 29. Uh, Jay Bruce has a 110 career OPS plus and was traded to New York at age 29. So if there's any uh, qualms, you know, I, I was born in the, the mid-'80s, and I was a little kid when they won the World Series in 1990 and grew up with that, uh, you know, that Paul O'Neill, Eric Davis outfield. Uh, and then when they traded O'Neill, I was kind of devastated, especially watching him do what he did uh, once he got to the Yankees. So if there's any symmetry that might pop up with that, you guys might have that working for you on the karma side. Um, but it was kind of one of those parallels where I looked up and I was like, oh, wow, that's that's kind of eerily similar. So, <laughs> Yeah, and that's something that I actually hadn't heard. It might come up at some point, I guess, uh, since the Mets are playing the Yankees this week. But you're breaking the news to me right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, for you, for your all sake, I hope it goes that way. I hope you sign him up and he leads you to a couple world series for the next decade or so. Hey, that, that sounds good to me. Um, so yeah, it's hopefully it's a fair trade on both sides. Was there anything else that you were thinking, uh, 
in terms of the Mets prospects that came over or didn't come over that you were looking to find out in case anybody from uh, Red Reporter is listening? Um, I think we pretty much tapped everything. Uh, Wotel's de- uh, delivery is one of those things I'm looking to find out more about and get some more angles on because it looks like he's uh, uh, almost moonwalking on the mound when he, uh, when he pitches. But obviously he's still in rookie league, so I have no idea how much that's going to evolve over the years. But I don't know if you guys have any takes or jokes on that, but I'd love to hear them if possible. Uh, so it, it hasn't become a major thing yet, if only because he's been slightly overshadowed by uh, this other kid, Zapucky who was drafted in the same draft as him and has really excelled. And Wotel's done well, too. Uh, and I, I know the Mets were pretty high on him when they drafted him, and, and they were happy to get him at the point in the draft that they did. Um, but I have not seen him pitch in person, aside from uh, spring training you know, bullpens and stuff. So the only thing I have is uh, have to offer <laughs> specifically on him is that he was the subject of a few of my favorite photos that I took while I was there. Oh, nice. Because it's just, you know, uh, I was behind him at the time, you know, and he's, he's thrown on one of the uh, eight or ten mounds, whatever they have next to each other. Um, and, you know, you just look at a couple of the, of the shots afterwards, and it's just, I mean, it's beyond funky. It's like, you know, the, the both elbows are up. Uh, you know, his his torso is sort of leaning forward and down. Uh, you know, even even if you've seen, like, sidearm deliveries, it, it doesn't look like that, and it's not really a, a sidearm thing. It's very, very unique. Yeah, it's like he takes a third step in his delivery, and he comes in almost like it's almost like his upper arm is going for a sidearm, but he's got the bent elbow. It, uh, I mean... The velocity's there, like I mentioned before, he could touch 95, he sits 91, 93. Uh, with that delivery, I mean, he's already a crafty lefty as is, but if he can keep that up, that's just one more added error of uh, uh, added dimension of uh, uh, deception, I guess, that hopefully he can continue to parlay as he, uh, as he moves up through the minors. But I saw that and I was like, good God, I guess, I guess the Reds are obviously aware of it, but it's got to be something that they had to look at once and be like, wait a minute, what are we going to do with this? <laughs> yeah well hopefully uh i'd like to see all these guys do well and you know the one thing the parting thing i guess on herrera that i'll say is that he should be good soon enough to be in the lineup with joey Votto. you know and then i'm not saying Votto's demise is anywhere even close but you know as Votto plays out the rest of his career presumably staying in cincinnati you know herrera might be a nice compliment to him on the right side of the infield so that's 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 great to hear because obviously i I saw something tweeted earlier today that uh the reds combo of first baseman second baseman right fielder with bruce phillips and Votto had the most career starts of any trio uh since at least 1914 um and it was by over 100 starts so yeah, it's, it's been weird to watch that portion of the last, you know, great Reds teams of uh, 2010 through 2013 get broken up uh, by, by losing Bruce. But at least they've got that in the record books for having started that many games together. And hopefully Herrera can come in and he and Jose Peraza can form the uh, the up-the-middle combo that the Reds have been looking to, to, to build for the future with. So, Yeah. All right. Well, uh, once again, we've been speaking with Wick Terrell from Red Reporter. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at wick terrell um 
and check out his work at redreporter.com. And uh, Wick, thanks again for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. This is your friend Aaron York. Your friend Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio. Today, I'm really excited to talk about Alejandro Diazza because your boy has finally started to hit, and I don't want to hear any Mets fans acting surprised that Alejandro Diazza has started to hit. I don't want to hear anyone saying that... Well, I do want to hear people saying that he's turned it around because he has, but it was just obnoxious hearing that fans wanted this guy DFA'd. Not all fans, but... You were starting to hear it should the Mets designate Alejandro for assignment a couple months ago when he wasn't hitting, even though he wasn't getting regular playing time. It was a small sample size. He has a long history of being a decent outfielder, which is why the Mets did the wise thing, and they hung on to him. And even though they had a bunch of left-handed hitting outfielders already, hey, here's a guy who has actually played center field for a decent amount of time in his career, even though... Like everyone on their roster, he's not an ideal center fielder. I should say everyone not named Juan Lagares, although now he's on the disabled list for a significant amount of time. So if you're looking for a late-inning defensive replacement who could still hit a little bit, it looks like Alejandro de Aza is going to be the guy for the Mets, and that's because they stuck with him even though he didn't hit for the first couple months of the season, which was just over 100 at-bats, so it wasn't really a large sample size, but you know how fans get a guy, especially a new player, who they probably weren't keeping track of every day when he was on the White Sox or when he was getting traded around the last couple of seasons. They see this guy come in. He doesn't hit, and immediately he's a bum, but I knew Alejandro Deaza was going to do something this year because he's been a decent player. His stats in the last few years, and even before that, he first broke in with 2007 in the Marlins, in 2007 for the Marlins, and he's been a good fourth outfielder, even though he's been a third outfielder for a lot of these teams. He's been just fine. It didn't make sense for him to completely drop off a cliff like this. In fact, even the Mets reporters are surprised that he's finally started to hit a little bit. I was watching the post game on SNY last night, and one of the reporters asked him, hey, have you changed your approach a little bit? I saw you choking up when you hit that home run. He said, no, I always choke up, because he's just sticking with what he's doing. Maybe he's tweaking a couple things with Kevin Long, but he's just doing the same thing that's helped him be a major league player for the past, for the past nine seasons. And his stats are probably going to look a little worse this year. Currently, he's batting 211, 300, 323. Although, obviously, that was a little lower just a few weeks ago. It's going to be a little lower because he got off to a slow start and he's not getting regular playing time. And Alejandro Diaza is going to continue not getting a lot of playing time because we know the Mets have a crowded outfielder and they're trying to put as much offense in that outfield, outfield as they can. But it looks like Deaza is a useful member of this team, like the Mets planned for it when they signed him before they even know they were, know, knew they were going to get Ioannis Cespedes back. If 
the Mets had a healthy Juan Lagares and they didn't have Juana Cespedes, who knows? Maybe a Deaza Lagares platoon with them both getting a decent amount of playing time would have worked out just fine. That's what they planned before Cespedes kind of fell in their laps over the offseason. But the point is, Alejandro de Aza has shown that the stats in the long run have meaning and that the player who he is now is more like the guy he's been for the past nine years. He's not a bum who just comes to the Mets and magically can't hit, even though they're not playing him that much. So we'll see what happens with Alejandro de Aza down the stretch. Are the Mets going to use him as a late-inning defensive replacement? Do they maybe keep riding this hot hand, give him a couple starts? Because he does provide more defensive value in center field, I believe, than Curtis Granderson or Michael Conforto. Speaking of Conforto, that's a guy who also had a nice game on Tuesday night. I'm recording this on a Wednesday morning, but he had two doubles. Both went the opposite way. And by the way, because the Mets acquired Jay Bruce, it's also going to be a problem fitting Conforto into the lineup. So hopefully this Bruce trade works out. I know I wasn't a huge fan of it, but now seemingly all of a sudden Deaza and Conforto playing pretty well, and now there has a full-time role right now. So we'll see how Terry Collins juggles the outfield going forward. I would I was kind of expecting Conforto to head back to the minors without a full-time role, but Maybe he'll be useful on the bench. I know Deaza is going to be useful on the bench because they just need his defense with Lagares out right now. And the fact that he's hitting right now, that might get him a couple starts if the Mets want to rest Juana Cespedes, which obviously they want to, given his nagging injury. And again, we'll see what happens. They're going to, they're going to have Bruce out there every day. I'm guessing... Granderson's going to continue to be at the top of the lineup, so if Cespedes continues to need rest, it's just more opportunities for Diazza, it's more opportunities for Conforto to show that maybe the Mets jumped a gun a little bit by trading for Jay Bruce. But good news is the Mets have plenty of outfielders to go around, thanks to Diazza starting to hit the ball a little bit, and not listening to the fans who wanted him gone so recently ago. This has been Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio. Hey everyone, Steve Schreiber here, and it's time for your This Week in SNY Minute here on Amazing Avenue Audio. During Tuesday night's victory over the Yankees, Uh, We had a pretty legendary Keith Hernandez moment, courtesy of Gary Cohen. Leading off the bottom of the eighth inning, uh, SNY showed a great clip of the classic Mets moment from 2005 when they sung coup, uh, hit a double off of Randy Johnson, and rounded the bases. Uh, So this, of course, led to a conversation talking about coup's number, which happened to be Keith Hernandez's number 17. So it's well known that the Mets, since Keith Hernandez has left, for whatever reason, have given number 17 to a number of, uh, let's let's call them uh, scrubs, bad players, uh, for whatever reason. And of course, Mr. Koo is one of them. 
but uh, Gary went through the whole list, and uh, Keith wasn't really uh, enjoying it. Left-hander, too, right? And also, yes. Mr. Koo wearing number 17. That's It, it had hits in it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's count all the people who wore 17. Felix wore it, right? Did Felix wear it? Neon? No, he wore 16. That's right. That's right. But since you wore it, Jose Lima. Oh, since, yeah. Luis Lopez. Didn't Ellis Valentine wear it before me? Jeff McKnight. Brent oh. Main. What the heck were they doing? <laughs> Graham <laughs> Lloyd. Just debasing the number. <laughs> Fernando Tatis. David oh. Newham. Oh. Wilson Delgado. Oh, stop. Jason Anderson. Well, that's enough. Saturo Komiyama. <laughs> Mike Bordick. Kevin Apier. It's like devaluing the dollar. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they did get off the gold standard. <laughs> That's it out the left field. Back and forth. Every moan and groan that uh, Keith lets out there uh, could really be said for all of us. I know so many of those players, their their names, they, they make me really just kind of want to die. Uh, hearing... All of those names again, uh, Satoru Komiyama, the, the Japanese Greg Maddox, Jose Lima, whose time with the Mets was short, but through some of the worst games I've ever witnessed, David Newhan, who was brought in to be a utility guy, but just flailed away every time he stepped up to the plate and couldn't really play defense and really had no purpose whatsoever. It's, it's not a good group of, of people to be associated with. The list is is really amazing in its in its awfulness, and uh, we're really glad nobody has number seventeen now. Uh, just you know, it obviously further soil that number, and uh, you know somebody somebody really awful would would be wearing it. I don't know if there would be a way to have uh, Eric Campbell, Kevin Plawecki, and Antonio Bastardo wear it at the same time, but. The Mets would probably figure out a way to do that. Um, so we're thankful that they seem to be keeping Keith's number out of rotation, and uh, they're they're finally uh, starting to realize that maybe we shouldn't give his number to just any old jabroni out there. So that wraps up your This Week in SNY Minute for this week. I'm Steve Schreiber. Thanks for listening. And now back to Amazing Avenue Audio. stateside after eight-ish days in England. I come back and guys, I literally have just no idea what the Mets have done for the last like week. Their trade deadline made no sense. Their outfield makes no sense. It is just a complete mess right now. Um, so they signed Jay Bruce. Or I'm sorry, they traded for Jay Bruce, which I think we probably all saw coming. I think we've all seen coming for literally a year at this point, and we've all been saying for literally a year at this point that it's a bad idea. But here we are. And they brought back old friend John Neese. Because of course they did. He's probably better than Antonio Bastardo at this point, but that's not saying much because Antonio Bastardo has been really bad for the Mets. 
So instead, we're pretending that Nice is going to come out of the bullpen four times a week for an inning. And he's going to be great. And that's going to last for like three days until Terry Collins forgets what he's supposed to be doing. And we're going to go back to John Nice being just exactly what we saw for the last however many years. John Nice was on that mound. So I guess strap in for that. And we're still a game and a half back in the wild card. That's nowhere close to insurmountable. But it's just been ugly. And tonight, because, hey guys, it's Wednesday and I brought the bad news, Lucas Duda has been shut down for another 30 days. And it's highly unlikely we're going to see him back on the field this year. There's just not enough time for rehab. So we're going to get a whole lot more James Loney. And it's going to be... It's going to be something. I don't even know. They're still probably not going to give Michael Conforto a first baseman's mitt. Because why would they do something that makes complete sense? Instead, they're going to play with a below average first baseman. And what are we up to? Like six corner outfielders and no center fielders? Eh, you know, whatever. It all makes sense. Something or other. It's... I don't know, I don't want to say give up on the season because they're buying and they're a game and a half out of the wild card and it's there. It just, they've had a lot go wrong this year and they're going to have to have a lot click really quickly to overcome this. I think they can do it, but yeah, it's a little worrisome. So hopefully... I don't know, I keep saying I'm going to break my streak of bad news. Maybe I'm just going to start, stop recording this on Wednesdays. But then we'll have bad news on Tuesdays. So you know what? I'm just not going to do anything. I'm going to watch the Mets and it'll probably end in disaster. Because it's the Mets. Well, folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you all so much for listening. We are going to be doing some fun stuff coming up, so stay tuned. We're getting near a milestone episode, and we're going to celebrate in style, so stay tuned for that one in just a few weeks. Uh, As always, please go to AmazingAvenue.com to check out all the great writers that you heard on the show, as well as writers you didn't hear on the show, and check out their work, especially around the trade deadline. There was just some incredible stuff happening from our crew, so... Check out AmazingAvenue.com. You can follow the show and the site on social media. Just about everywhere you'd think there might be an Amazing Avenue, there's an Amazing Avenue. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, find us all there at Amazing Avenue. You can follow the contributors to the show on Twitter. I am Brian. I'm on Twitter at Brian Needs a Nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Steve Schreiber is at underscore Mr. Met. Aaron York is at APY5000. Kate Feldman is at Kate E. Feldman. Brian Renzi is at BRenz78. And Lucas Vlahos is at Elvlahos343. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And even though the Mets looked pretty pathetic against the Yankees last night, Let's have hope that they can salvage the Subway Series tonight. And as always, let's go Mets.